Live. Hi, this is Robert Furrow from Calvary Chapel of Tucson, and this is TruthQuest Q&A, uh, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Uh, really good to see you guys, really good to be with you guys. If you have any questions, a couple of things. Number one, make sure that they're clear. That is, as you write them and then um, rewrite them, or as you write them, take a look at them, make sure they're asking the question you wanted to ask. And if you have a reference, then add the reference in, and we'll take some time to look at the reference as well. Also, you can put the word question with the word question, and uh, uh, then we'll be able to, I'll be able to choose it, kind of go through my feed here, find it quickly, and bring it in. Uh, it's good to see all of you guys, uh, those of you who are new. Uh, our desire is to look through the at, at questions through the lens of Scripture. And we never want to look at it to try to back up what we believe. We want to know what the Scripture says. We realize we want to walk humbly before God, right? Love Jesus, stay humble. Uh, and we realize that we could all be wrong. And so we want to search the Scriptures and make sure that we are rightly dividing the Word of God. And uh, that we are comparing Scripture to Scripture and we want to see what the Bible tells us to believe rather than uh, just try to you know, use the Bible to put spin on believing what we believe. And we see a lot of people doing that. Uh, just uh, hello, you guys. I see you guys popping on, saying hi. Daniel, good to see you. Uh, one of our moderators. Uh, welcome, guys. Uh, I hope that God really uses this. I'd like to open up today's in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the time that we can spend together here today. We pray that your spirit would lead and guide as we take a look at it, that your spirit would open up the truths to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So our first question, um, we answered a little bit last week, and um, I wanted to come back and answer it again because I had it prepared uh, for this week already. And it has to do with the rapture of the church uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says that we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And it says before that, those he will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, and then their, their bodies will be resurrected and they will meet the Lord. So someone asked, why do those who return with Jesus in the rapture need a body? Now, the Bible tells us that God is spirit, and God manifests himself in in, in a bodily form. He came to Abraham. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the door of his tent. Uh, you have a few other instances. Angels are spirit. We also know that they manifest themselves in bodies. The Bible says that some of us have entertained angels unaware. I think that's the end of Hebrews uh, chapter 1, that we have angels around us and they're so much like human that we don't even know it, or they can manifest themselves so much like human that we don't even know it. And I believe in the intermediate state that we are not just a spirit floating around, but that we can manifest ourselves as a body. However, the Bible says that we are going to be like Jesus and that we are going to be, be resurrected with these bodies, but they're going to be changed, 1 Corinthians 15. In a moment, a twinkling of an eye for some people, and this corruptible will put on incorruptible, and this mortal will put on immortality. And I don't believe that our bodies will be the age that they are when we die. I believe uh, that, that we will have a body like Christ, and um, I think it, it, in a resurrected body, Jesus could eat. I think that we could, we'll be able to eat. So they needed to have the body because they needed to be able to be just like us as part of the church. We're all going to be the same. And so we have that resurrection that takes place um, at the rapture of the church where those who died and are with Christ will be reunited with their bodies um, that will be resurrected at that time. 
All right, First, uh, First Thessalonians chapter 4. So uh, good to see you guys here. Again, if you have any questions, you can write the word question by question and or, or by your question. And as I make my way through here, we'll get to them. Uh, Jari, I see your question here. I think we got a question from you earlier as well uh, that uh, I'm, I'm looking at. He says, from my cousin Adam, um, from my cousin, did Adam and Eve need to use the restroom, brush teeth, etc., before they fell? Same with us in the resurrected body. All right, so um, there's certainly things that I haven't thought about. Um, uh, I'm, I, I, I don't know, as we're talking about Adam and Eve in their state, their unfallen state, um, if they had used the restroom or brushed their teeth, um, I would think that we would not need to in our resurrected body. Um, I think that uh, um, we will be, I just can't. <laughs> can't imagine that never thought about going to the bathroom as being a part of heaven so uh i'm gonna i'm gonna ultimately fall back on i don't know um especially with adam and eve but i'm gonna say i i don't think that we will in the in the future um but i do appreciate your question and um there are a lot of things that we have not thought about over a period of time and i think that that's that's definitely um one of them uh, we have a question here from albert Albert says, uh, hello, Pastor. Hi, Albert. Good to see you. Um, the mercy seat represents Jesus, and Exodus 28, 29 through 30 describes the Urim and the Thummim uh, worn on the heart for making decisions. Does this represent the Holy Spirit? Um, I think that all of these things in the, in the temple, in the... Uh, on the robes that they wore represented certain things about Jesus Christ, to be sure. Um, I can see why that question would be brought up because whatever that device was, it was a way that they were able to seek God's direction and you and I are led by the Holy Spirit today. And, uh, and so I can see that. Um, I'll have to give some more thought to it. You know, you're, when you're kind of answering questions off the cuff, and again, especially ones, I mean, I've taught the arm and the thumb before, um, but never really thought about it being the Holy Spirit. Um, so I'd like to kind of put that in the cooker a little bit and think about that, maybe go back and read that passage. Um, in fact, let's, let's just go there. Let's go to Exodus 28 and um, let's take a look at that. I mean, uh, maybe we can uh, gain something from that. Exodus 28, and we'll start in verse 29. All right, I'm going to bring you guys in here in just a moment. Exodus 28, 29. All right. And let me go ahead and click you guys over here. So it says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the Son of Israel on the breastplate of the judgment over his heart when it goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And you shall put in it the breastplate of judgment, the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart where he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Um, let's see. Uh, so it's all, this is all about the ephod um, that the high priest is going to wear. Um, so I don't know. There, I, don't, I don't see um, uh, anything here that would make me think of that directly. Um, other than you have um, 
other than you have uh, the direction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Excuse me. So the Bible tells us um, that the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. And so that was leading and guiding, and I could see why that connection would be made. I, I'd like to think about that a little bit and uh, maybe get back to you, um, Albert, with an answer on whether or not that is um, a type of the Holy Spirit, but I could see that. So we have a question here from Josh. Uh, Josh says, do you believe a person can lose their salvation if they genuinely were saved? Um, Okay, thank you very much for your question. It's a good one, and it's a question that we get a lot. I, I would say the most questions that we get are surrounding assurance of salvation. Um, and so I believe that if someone is genuinely saved, they really make a commitment to Christ. They are truly born again. Their spirit comes to life, and they are transformed. I believe that they will, they will then bear fruit that reveals that they have genuinely been transformed, and I believe that they will endure. And if they fall away, I believe that Jesus will leave the 99 and will go after the one. So if it is possible for someone to lose their salvation, it would be very rare and it would have to be a continual, constant rejection. Um, I've always said that this argument is not a, this argument is not a good argument because if someone, if someone walks away from Christ and becomes an apostate, becomes let's go to the extreme, becomes a devil worshiper, and they were genuinely saved. Um, is this just a sign that they were not genuinely saved? Or is this someone who was genuinely saved and walked away? The most radical, once saved, always saved individual is going to say that they are not saved because it's evidenced by the fact that they became a demon worshiper and you're not going to have demon worshipers in heaven. Those who believe that you can lose their salvation are going to say that they're un they lost their salvation, that they may have been saved, but they walked away. And um, so both would agree that this guy's lost. In fact, I think they agree on more than what they uh, disagree on. And so I would say that arguing over one saved, always saved is kind of fruitless because of the end result. Um, I lean towards um, once saved, always saved. It is the one part of Calvinism um, that I, I lean towards. And that I think I think is the case. I know when I walked away that Jesus uh, came after me. I know people that he has gone after. If um, you have to endure in order to be saved, and that's a genuine sign that you've made a real commitment to Christ. Talking about false teachers that were among them, and these guys may ne never have been genuinely saved in the book of John. John said they went out from us, proving they were never part of us. Uh, that again could be false teachers that were never a part of them and not talking about those, not talking about salvation at all, but talking about false teachers who are there in their midst for their own reasons. Um, I want to take a moment and welcome all of you guys who are new and encourage you to take time to like and subscribe and ring the bell. Uh, the metrics of YouTube, if you're on YouTube, the metrics of YouTube are uh, that they will push this out more if people like it more and if people ring the bell and subscribe uh, to the channel. Uh, so we'd like to reach as many people with the message of the gospel as we possibly can. If you're on Facebook, then we'd ask you to go ahead and share this as well. Uh, good to see you guys uh, here. 
Uh, we have another question. So a good question about um, whether or not you can genuinely, you lose, if genuine Christian can lose their salvation. I think there's transformations that take place and I lean towards that guy not being able uh, to lose his salvation. All right, we can talk about the other points in um, in Calvinism if you guys want to, um, but I would, I would, I lean towards thinking that that person is genuinely saved, will remain saved. And so we have another question here from uh, JG, Pastor. Ooh, uh, let me get this back again, Pastor. Um, what is your professional view on the book of First Enoch? Is this Ethiopian Orthodox Biblical canon and is spoken about uh, in some of the early church writers? Thank you. Um, yeah, I you do find um, references to, uh, reference to Enoch in Jude. Uh, you find a couple of other passages that look like they're referring to the book of Enoch. Um, this doesn't make Enoch scripture, okay? Because um, Paul refers to a philo Greek philosopher in Acts chapter 17, and that doesn't make the Greek philosopher um, Christian. Uh, so you can reference non-biblical works. The book of Enoch was around in the first century. Um, it, was, it was a popular book uh, in uh, the um, second, second uh, temple period. And um, so uh, that doesn't make it scripture just because you find it referenced. Um, I think that there's a lot of strange things in it. I understand why the Jews did not make it part of their canon of scripture, and I understand why it did not become part of the early church canon of scripture. Um, like any other book that's out there, especially ancient book, you can get an idea of the way people were thinking back in those days, especially in the time of Jesus, because the book of Enoch was around in the time of Jesus. It's part of the apocryphal writings, uh, but there are certain things that would disagree with Scripture, so I don't believe that they should be in Scripture, although I do believe there could be some value. I wouldn't read it over Scripture, but um, to be able to get familiar with what's out there and, and to look and to read some of those things, I think can be good. All right, uh, JG, I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Um, and we have a question here from uh, Matthew Ferguson. Matthew says, my son recently told me he is transgender and have been struggling and have been struggling with it. I have prayed about it and what to know about um, his salvation. Well, thank you, Matthew. I appreciate your question um, and I understand how difficult it is when our children make decisions that, and that, that don't connect with our faith and what we believe about Jesus. And I would say to you to pray for him to continue to pray for him. I think that there's a lot of confusion today um, with the world and we are not part of this world. Uh, we are sojourners, we are passing through. And um, I would say that you would demonstrate your love towards him, show him that you love him. Um, we are not like the Jehovah Witnesses that shun our family when they don't follow what we believe. Um, and so we wanna show them the love of Christ and um, really begin to you know, talk with him about what this means. Um, you don't share in here what he believes about Jesus. Uh, I don't know whether there's been a rejection of Jesus or not, whether, or whether this is some kind of a um, progressive Christianity where they may be accepting some things that are clearly not biblical, I don't know. 
um, I would, um, so, I, you know, be a, a real faith in Christ will be able to bring in whatever changes need to be brought in. And I would not stop praying for him. I would not stop letting him know how much you love him. Uh, my heart goes out to you and, and many other people that are having these kind of difficulties with our children. I do believe that we are living in the last days and I think that we are in part of the great falling away. And I also believe that our prayers and fervency make a radical difference. The, the father that met Jesus on the bottom of the Mount of Transfiguration and asked that his son, he said to Jesus, if you can do anything, would, would you help us? Which is really kind of interesting because it's not the solid faith. I know you can help us, now help us. It's this, if you can do anything, then help us. And Jesus said, if you believe, all things are possible. And he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so he went before God with his son with some questions about whether or not Jesus was able to help and was able to receive help. And so I would say to keep praying for your son, Jesus said, ask and keep asking, knock and keep knocking. Don't give up, but continue to seek God for that particular sake, all right? So I do appreciate uh, your question. Um, again, good to see you guys. Uh, you're welcome there, uh, Josh. Uh, again, if you have questions, uh, then you can put your questions in the comment section, put question or a cue by them as I make my way down through them. Uh, I'll be able to pull them in here and we'll answer your questions today as long as questions come in or an hour, uh, whichever one comes first. So this is um, from Message of Hope. He says, hi, Pastor. Hello, Message of Hope. Um, my name is Robert. My question is, uh, and wanted your insight, the book of James says, God can't be tempted by evil and does not, and he does not tempt anyone. Jesus was God in the flesh, and yet he was tempted. All right, so yeah, um, you, you see what looks like a contradiction there, that God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone, and then Jesus in the flesh being God, being tempted every way as we were tempted, and yet without sin. And so I would say that this is, there were things about Jesus that were true in his humanity that are not true in his, in his eternity. He took on flesh, and in taking on flesh, he was weak. I think we could say that God doesn't get hungry. I think we could say that God doesn't get tired. I think the Bible says that God never wearies, and yet we saw Jesus weary and tired. So when Jesus took on that humanity, he became like us and experienced real and true humanity. It doesn't mean that he wasn't weary or that he wasn't tempted. It means that he went through that, but he was certainly victorious over those things. So I don't think that there is a... Um, a conflict here between these things. I think it's a very thoughtful, good question. I think that these are the questions that we should be asking and seeking in the pages of scripture. Uh, but I believe that Jesus becoming man took on part of our weaknesses and part of that weaknesses was being tempted. Um, but God in his eternal form, the son in his eternal form is not going to be tempted neither does he tempt anyone, but it's the evil one that tempts us. And so we're to pray, uh, Lord, deliver us from evil. So message of hope, really good question. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question here from, uh, from Danny Abrams. Uh, Danny says, uh, question, hello, Robert. Hi, Danny, how are you? I've got this 
moving all over the place. Let me get this down here. Um, uh, hi, Robert, um, and blessings to you. Thank you, and blessings to you too. Uh, in Mark 11, 13 and 14, and seen uh, from another after, uh, excuse me, and seen after the fig tree um, having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. It is, um, it is, is what not, it was not the season for figs and with him saying perhaps would that also not allow for perhaps not um, in all that God says including all of his holy scriptures um, I believe in what God says include all the scriptures but this has always been confusing to me thank you all right so let's go ahead and um, take a look at this passage all right and let's take a look at what you're talking about here so this is Matthew 11 excuse me Mark 11 Right, Mark 11, 13, and 14. So I'm going to just go to Mark here. Um, Mark chapter uh, figures. All right, go to Mark. Right when I got there, I popped it popped off. Mark 11 verses 13, verse 13. Okay. And so let's go ahead and bring you in here. Oops, wrong one. All right, so here we go. Um, now it says, here Here we go. Did I go to Matthew? Or no, I went to Mark, right? Yeah, I went to Mark. Okay, so now the next day when they had come from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came uh, to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So uh, the fig tree often is said to be uh, a, let me find you here again. There you go. So the fig tree is often said to be a representative of the nation of Israel. And um, this was not, obviously the season for figs and Jesus curses the fig tree anyway when he shows up to Israel it is the season for them to be fruitful Jesus has appeared to them and they should be receiving him but there is no fruitfulness in Israel at all and because of that blindness Romans chapter 11 blindness in part happens to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in so we have what I think here is a contrast not a comparison jesus goes to a fig tree he expects there to be fruit on it perhaps but it's not the season and because of that he curses the fig tree and so the nation of israel should have fruit on it how much more will god set them aside at a time when they should have had it now i love that god is going to restore the nation of israel again romans chapter 11 says and so all of israel will be saved but i do believe there is a connection between the fig tree here and the nation of Israel. Uh, the other aspect of it would be fruitfulness, that God expects us to bear fruit. Not that fruit in any way, shape, or form leads to salvation, but we know that when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit's inside of us, and we have the fruit of the Spirit. And the thing about fruit is that it grows slowly. 
You, it starts not being there at all, but it grows slowly and it's produced. And so our fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these ought to be the signs and the marks of believers. If Jesus comes to our lives and doesn't find them there, that is evidence that we haven't really made a commitment to him. And then we are cursed, just as he cursed the fig tree. Again, I would say that this is a passage of contrast, not comparison. If Jesus treated that fig tree that way, how much more will he treat those that he expects to find fruit from? And the fruit is the evidence of who you are. If you have good fruit, that means that you're a believer. So I think that Jesus is also saying that there needs to be by necessity fruit in our lives. All right. Thanks, uh, Danny. Hopefully that's helpful. You can ask a follow-up question on that if you want to, if I didn't get all of um, all of the things that you were considering there. Um, but I, the, the main answer to that is I believe it's a contrast and that he expects to find fruit in our lives. Sorry. He expects to find fruit in our lives. All right. Um, so, um, very strong. let's see. I'm just going to go down here and look for more questions. Cheryl Lynn has a question. Um, All right. Hi, um, uh, hi, Cheryl. Good to see you. Um, I often hear there are so many spiritual books out there. How do you know the Bible is true? Because I have always believed solely in the Bible. I am stumped how to answer this question. Thoughts? Thank you for your question. Yeah, that's, um, that's really good. And I think people in the world will look at the Bible and they'll think about other books that are out there. But you want to think about what, what books are they talking about? Are they talking about the Quran? Are they talking about, you know, what, what other spiritual books are out there that would even fall into the category of the Bible? And so that's a good, that's a good, something good to ask them. What other spiritual books are you talking about? And then comparing that to scripture when it comes to prof, prophecy, accuracy, geographical accuracy, historical accuracy, um, spiritual accuracy, prophetic accuracy, all brings me to the place where I put my trust in the Word of God, where I put my trust in this book, and I don't think there's any other book that can even be compared to what the Bible has to say or what the Bible's going to say. And so the way that I would respond when someone says that to me, I would ask them, well, what other book are you talking about? And if they brought up some book, I would take time to research that book and then I would go talk to them intelligently about that book. Ask them what it is that they like about that book, why they think that it could be compared with scripture. And then I would talk about the um, accuracy of Bi the Bible. It's amazing. The Bible can even be found accurate when it comes to, uh, to um, uh, scientific things. You know, there are people today that believe that the earth is flat still. There's flat earthers. And the Bible says that the earth is a globe hung in space on nothing. The Bible talks about wind currents. It talks about hydrology, water that, that goes up above the mountains, falls on the mountains, it comes back down into the ocean again. All of these things weren't understood in their day, but the Bible talks about them. Uh, God says, I'm the God who can tell the future. And there are some amazing prophecies uh, in the Bible, not just about Jesus, by the way. Jesus fulfilled a lot of them and they're great, but there are just some absolutely amazing prophecies that we find in the pages of Scripture. And all of those give me that confidence that I am reading and believing that which is real and that which is true. So um, 
I would um, I would ask what um, what other books are you talking about, and then take some time to look up those books and to be able to talk intelligently about them, uh, because they talk about there being a lot of other spiritual books, but there's nothing that stands on par with the the Bible and, and the claims that the Bible has. All right, uh, Jay, uh, All right, Cheryl, I appreciate that. We have another question here from JG. Uh, says, uh, Pastor Robert, in the end times, will fallen angels physically manifest to the world? Um, so, uh, let me think. Um, we do know that Satan is cast down to the earth and no longer has access to heaven. Woe to those who are on earth because Satan has great wrath. So we know that. Um, we do know, uh, so we know that, we do know that the bottomless pit is released and Apollyon uh, is released during those last days. So I'm just trying to think if I can think of any scriptures uh, that would say that angels are going to manifest themselves, fallen angels are going to manifest themselves um, in the world in the last days. Um, uh, maybe the passage, you know, it depends on what you believe about the Nephilim and the sons of God and the daughters of men. Um, but it does say, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the return of the Son of Man. And then it talks about men eating, drinking, and marrying, and giving in marriage. And then the sudden destruction came upon them, which tells us that the world's not going to have this real apocryphal feeling in the last days. So I don't know that that's necessarily talking about angels. Um, I can't think of anything, any passage. Um, if you guys can, then then bring it up on the, the Q&A here, and um, maybe I'll be able to take a look at that. But I can't think of any passage that would talk about them manifesting themselves physically um, during that time. Uh, it's interesting that angels can manifest themselves, and so you would think that fallen angels could, um, but maybe there is maybe there's some kind of a restriction on that. All right. Uh, so, JG, thank you. Another good question. All right, you guys, very, very thoughtful stuff. Uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate your guys' thoughtfulness as we take time to look at um, at these through the lens of Scripture. Um, and um, a, um, Andrea Miller, question, uh, how long is the generation in the Bible? I've heard 40 years. Others say 70 or 80. Um, yeah, I've heard all these different as well. Um, and it usually comes back to uh, the return of Jesus, where Jesus talks about this generation. He he talks about the fig tree, you know, when it begins to blossom. And when you see the fig tree blossom, um, the, those that see these things happen are not going to pass away. And when you see the fig tree blossom, you know that summer is near. And then they say that the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. And I talked a little bit earlier about that fig tree that Jesus cursed representing the nation of Israel. And so then Israel became a nation in 1948, which I believe is a fulfillment of, of past of scripture, Jeremiah, Isaiah, um, uh, Zechariah, that talked about Israel becoming a nation in the last days. And I believe that God is involved in that. And so then they say, well, a generation for, would have been 40 years. So that would have gone to 1988, 48 to 88. Then you had, you know, 88 reasons for 88 was written. You, you had 80, 1981 was prophesied that Jesus was going to return in that time. I remember seeking God during those days and believing that Jesus could return at any moment because of this whole generation thing, um, but he didn't return. And then after that, um, now, then you had the 80-year generation, so 48 uh, to um, 
what would we be? What would 80 years be from 48? So that'd be 68, that'd be 28. So minus seven years, you have 23. We're about to see some crazy stuff be unleashed because people are saying 80 years is the, um, is the biblical generation. Um, hey, the Bible says that man could live to be 120 years old. And we know that people live to be around that time. And so does it mean that in 1928, that there are people who are still gonna be alive when Jesus returns? So 28, you had 120 years to that, and you come to 2068. Subtract seven years, and you have six, 2061. So we've got time still, if, if God really does mean that generation who sees these things. Um, I don't know if he was just talking about sees the end times come about. Is he talking about the beginning of the, of, of um, the, the, the Magog War? Some believe that that's the case. Um, I don't, as far as the biblical generation, I, I don't know of any passage that talks about a biblical generation. I, I realize people have tried to use scriptures to talk about all of these. Um, I think instead we should be ready and we should not set dates and we should stay away from setting dates as much as we possibly can. Those who have set dates, there was a great disappointment in 1844. Those who um, set dates have, have been wrong. And I think that we should look for Jesus, our eyes on the sky, be ready for him um, and eagerly await his return. Um, however, don't set dates and stay away from that. So I hope that's helpful. Um, Andrea, I understand why people say 80. I understand why people say 40. Um, I don't know that either of those are biblical generations. All right, maybe it just means that people will be alive um, during that time. All right, I appreciate that. So Jari has another question here. Uh, Jari uh, says, um, question, why did God change God's, um, why, excuse me, why did Eve change God's statements? Uh, we can't look at the tree of knowledge. How long were they in the garden? Did Satan talk to them before? Uh, again, some really good, thoughtful questions. Um, and the answer to some of this is we don't know. So Adam and Eve didn't have any children. They were created male and female. So we would assume that they would have had a natural husband and wife relationship. So we assume that they were not in the garden a long time. Um, Satan being in the garden, tempting them, um, may well, very well may be a seraphim. A seraph in the Bible is, um, can be referred to, it's, it's a burning one but refers to the poison that's in a snake. Some believe that seraphim were, were serpent-like angels, and that's why you have this angel in the garden and that they would have seen seraphim around God and wouldn't have been alarmed by it and not known that Satan, if he was a seraphim, would have fallen. Um, as far as changing the statement, uh, I think that she was just being unwise. I, I think that when you look at that whole interaction um, we get an example of how we are deceived by sin. So God had said to Adam, of all of the trees that are in the garden, you can freely eat of them all. But of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, that's the tree of, of life, then, or excuse me, the tree of good and knowledge, then you shall not eat of it. And in the day you eat of it, you will die. So then Satan shows up and says, has God said you can't eat of anything in the garden? Which is an accusation, right? Did God say you can't eat of any of this? And she says, well, God said we can eat of the trees of the garden and she leaves off freely. So the first thing she does is omit God's word. And when we start omitting God's word, we become vulnerable to being deceived by it. 
when we forget how gracious God is in the life that he's given us and all he's given us. So so she says, he said we could eat of it, omitting freely. God said you can freely eat of the tree, but of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, you shall not eat. And she said, we cannot eat it or touch it lest we die. So she added, touch it. We can't eat it or touch it. So now she's adding to God's word. Not only did she she take away from God's word, but now she adds to God's word. And again, when we start adding to God's word, we're messing around with God's word and that leads to more uh, being deceived even more. And so then Satan uh, um, literally um, changes God's word, right? He lies about it. Um, He questions God's word and then he changes it. He says, you shall not surely die or you shall not surely die. And then she changes it um, and she, oh, oh, she changed God's word. She had said, uh, we might die. That God has said in the day we eat it, we might die. And then Satan responded by saying, changing God's word, you shall not surely die. So when we start not hanging on to the word of God closely and, and listening to Satan who's lying about the word of God, it gets twisted and we become incredibly vulnerable at that moment, at that time, and uh, can find ourselves really falling into temptation. We don't know if Satan talked to them before, by the way. Just look at the rest of your question here and how long they were in the garden. So I think that it was a mistake that she made when she changed God's word. And it's always a mistake when you and I change God's word and um, and uh, don't hang on to the truths of what it says. All right, good question. I really appreciate that. We have another question here uh, from uh, Jari again. Uh, uh, Jari says, and I hope I'm saying your name right, by the way. Jari says, question, Pastor Robert. What if the Lord tarries another 2,000 years? How bad can the world get before he comes? Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much longer God can wait when you're talking about the advances of technology. I think that God already slowed down technology once. I think that's what the Tower of Babel was about partially. God confused the languages. And with confusing the languages, now knowledge had to slow down. We know it says in the book of Daniel that knowledge will increase and it's increasing. When we think about the different type of things that can happen today uh, with uh, genetics, uh, with AI, although I don't know whether we have true AI yet, artificial intelligence, where it can actually think and make decisions and then get smarter because of that. with especially genetics and mutations that may be made or maybe even being messed with now around the world with clones and um and some other things um i i would say i you know i mean who knows right i mean god's going to do what god's going to do and maybe he could confuse things again and slow things down um but with the the way things are advancing i don't see it lasting much longer i'm not setting a date but I believe that Jesus could come back at any moment. Uh, and I think uh, the day is drawing closer and closer. And so we should conduct ourselves properly, making sure that we pro- uh, conduct ourselves correctly um, in, the de- in these days because we are getting closer and closer uh, to those last days. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how bad the world would get. I don't know what kind of adv- technical advances we would have, how much things would change. Um, I know that God desires all to be saved and God waits just as absolutely long as he can. All right, thank you for your question. Jari, again, um, we have another question here from Renee and she comes to us from Facebook and she says, uh, leadership of the church. Should the church leaders, whether paid or not, and volunteers should all have committed 
a committed walk to, to Jesus? Should they be an example to the rest of the church? If someone is not committed by their behavior, should it, uh, report, should it be reported to the church, uh, pastor, or those who oversee the church? Thank you, Pastor Robert. Um, yes. Uh, I, I believe that if we see anything that is taking place among leadership that is questionable, that that ought to be brought back to the church. Um, and hey, if, if there's nothing there, then the church can look at it and make decisions to it. But if, if someone's not living a committed lifestyle to Christ, they need to be 100% committed to Christ. Otherwise, why would they want to be in leadership? Now, that's not to say there certainly are leaders who don't have a real commitment to Christ. There certainly are pastors and spiritual leaders that are doing what they do for other reasons. They're doing it because of power. They're doing it because of influence. They're doing it because of the way people see them. Uh, they're not doing it because out of a genuine commitment to the Lord. First Peter chapter 5 tells pastors why they should be pastors, why they shouldn't do it, and why they should do it. And um, I tell our staff on a regular basis, on a semi-regular basis, Listen, if you guys see anyone on staff that is doing something questionable, if it's proper to go and confront them, go and confront them. But if you see something that's really questionable, then come and report it. If you see me, I tell them, doing something that you think is questionable, then go talk to the elders of the church uh, because I want these things to be looked at. I want them to be out in the open. Uh, rather than having something hidden. And this is where churches have gotten themselves in trouble, where pastors end up having affairs, um, where, where there are some kind of a molestation within the church. And, you know, Lord forbid that that would ever happen in a church, in any church really, but in one that I'm pastoring, I would rather look at honestly and openly and something that's inappropriate that's going on rather than ignoring it and allowing it to continue on and take place. So yes, it should be reported to leadership and um, everyone needs to be committed wholeheartedly uh, to Christ. And um, when they're not, and God has saved us from some certain times on that, when we've got deacons or others who are not 100% committed to the Lord and who are kind of playing games and all of a sudden it becomes revealed to us that these games are being played. And um, so yeah, that's a good question. Renee, I really appreciate that. Um, so what's normal? Good to see you. Says, um, question, can scripture have more than two meanings? One for Israel and one for Gentiles. Uh, yeah, that's a really, um, I, I mean, you know, you say good question a lot, but yeah, that's a really good question. Again, it's a really thoughtful question. Yes, uh, passages can have different meanings to them. There can be something that is obvious, and then there can be something that that God uses as a as a prophecy or as a type. Sometimes you have an obvious meaning to a scripture, and there's a type in that scripture. Sometimes you have uh, a message that is there for the people who are there, and a message for the people that are to come. And we know this because we can look at passages from the Old Testament that are interpreted in the New Testament. So there are precedents set. And we want to interpret scripture based on the way they are interpreted in the New Testament. You, um, that's why we take prophecy literally, because almost every time that prophecy is interpreted in the New Testament, it is interpreted literally. So yeah, there can be types. 
Um, but I want to give a warning. What's normal? That um, there's dangers in that. And where false teachings come out, they come out of people making typologies and making metaphors of passages, trying to find deeper meaning in it. And so there's a saying in Bible study, if the first sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. And sometimes you could get in trouble. If you're going to find a second meaning in a passage, then you got to make sure that it's backed up by scripture and a first meaning somewhere else. Otherwise, you could find yourself twisting scripture and that is the last thing that we would ever want to begin uh, to even begin to do. Right? All right. So I appreciate your question. Uh, that's great. It's good to see all of you guys. Those of you who are new, we want to welcome you uh, to our Q&A. Uh, where we are taking time uh, to look at uh, questions through the lens of scripture. Um, not just, I'm just try trying to give you my opinion on what I think, um, but I'm trying to, to think about what else the Bible says about passages. And if a question is brought up and you guys think of a passage that maybe I haven't thought of, then go ahead and throw it in the comments. Um, we would love to, to have further discussion about some of the things that are answered here. All right. So, um, uh, Albert has another question. Good to see you again, Albert. Albert says, uh, the magicians of Egypt performed the same signs that Moses through their occult practices, which uh, this sleight of hand, um, was this sleight of hand or demonic power? Could some physicians, um, psychics today be displaying um, demonic power? It seems like there was demonic power that was there but sleight of hand is so good and there have been people who are committed to travel around and to, to go to psychics and to see whether or not psychics are really uh, genuinely are real genuine or whether it's parlor tricks and um they've been discovered as being parlor tricks over and over and over again in fact there's been none of them that have been found uh, to be genuine and real. There was one magician that put up, a, um, I think eventually a million dollars for anyone that could come and show them something that was genuinely supernatural that took place and that it went unclaimed. There were those that came to try to claim it, but it went unclaimed because he would know exactly how they were doing what they were doing. So as far as the magicians in Egypt, we don't know whether this was some form of a demonic power that was coming from the gods that they were serving, because we do know that their gods had demons behind them. Paul talked about that in the New Testament. And so maybe there that was the case, or maybe it was sleight of hand. We just don't know. But again, good, thoughtful question. I appreciate that, Albert. Uh, so again, um, uh, uh, want to welcome those of you who are new. We have a question here from um, Robert Pastor. What is your professional opinion of the Nephil, who the Nephilim were? The Bible doesn't talk too much about them, but they're in the Bible. Um, yeah, so um, let me see if I can find here really quick um, some of my notes on the Nephilim. There are a couple of passages here um, that I would like to take a look at. Um, yeah, let me see if I can just bring you in on what I have here in my notes. All right. So, um, first of all, um, I do believe that the angels of God were, were fallen angels. And I believe the daughters of men were women. 
and I do believe that the Nephilim were offspring. Um, I'm not, I don't know how, I don't know how to reconcile all that. I know that angels don't marry, but they do present themselves as people. Um, were these demon possessed men that married these women? I don't know. I don't, I, I don't, we don't have all the answers to that, but I do believe that that's what it was. I think that maybe Satan was indeed trying to somehow corrupt the, uh, the line that the Messiah would come from. Um, we today can change genetics. And so can Satan do what people can do? And so was there a supernatural way that he could change genetics that we, we can change genetics today? So was there some way that he could do it? So when we come to the New Testament, what did the New Testament writers think about those um, angels and, and those Nephilim? We have three passages that talk about it. So first of all, we have 2 Peter 2, 4. It says, for if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them to change from darkness to be reserved for judgment. So we know that there are some angels that sin that are reserved for judgment. And in Jude 1.6, and the angels who did not keep their proper dominion, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains until darkness for the judgment of that great day. The interesting word there is abode. They left their own abode. And then we have another passage here, and this is 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. And this is by far the one that speaks most of, of these being the angels of God being demonic spirits. It says, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once divine long, once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah. So when were the, where, why were these angels or these spirits imprisoned and what did they do in the days of Noah? while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. And so uh, I do believe uh, that these um, angels produced Nephilim. Nephilim are called mighty men. Later on, uh, the word rephidium and Nephilim is used to talk about giants. Then there's a reference to Nephilim being warriors in the book of Ezekiel as well. And so all of these together, uh, I think, it make, makes a connection uh, to that happening. And if they were in the land in the days after that, um, the days after Noah, that means there's some of it that went on after the days of Noah as well. But it seems like God will not allow these demons, uh, these, these fallen angels to remain on the earth, but judges them uh, and removes them. And you remember what angel said to Jesus? Uh, what have you to do with us? Have you come here to send us to the pit before our time? So they knew they were gonna be destroyed and they knew they could be thrown to the pit before their time. So appreciate that, Robert, good question. All right, uh, and so Annika has a question here. Um, good to see you, Annika. Uh, what is the power of raising hands in worship and in prayer? Uh, so again, good, thoughtful question. Um, the Bible says, let men everywhere lift up holy hands and pray. I know my mom's generation thought that the praying hands lifted up were like this, right? Because we had praying hands like that all around our house. The church that I attended, which is the Methodist church, had praying hands that were like that. Um, I know at end of services, I ask people to lift up their hands and pray. The Bible says lift up holy hands and pray. And that is, I think us, first of all, genuinely making sure that our lives are right and that we are forgiven that we ask God to forgive us and keep us close to him. And then we lift up holy hands to him because the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. I think that lifting up hands in worship 
has become a type of that. Remember, a lot of our worship songs are prayers. And a lot of the Psalms and that, that Israel sung were prayers as well. And so when you're lifting up hands in worship, oftentimes you're lifting up hands in, in prayer. Uh, you're praising God, you're worshiping him, you're declaring your belief to him. I think it's also a way of reaching out to him, like a child reaches out to a parent. Um, I love when one of my young grandchildren want to see me. They come up and they put out their hands and, and they want to be held by me. And I think that we can lift our hands. When I'm lifting my hands to God, that's what I'm doing. I'm lifting them up to God. I want to be closer to him. I want him to take me in his arms. I want him to draw me closer to him. I want him to work in my life. I want to love him with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength, giving everything wholeheartedly, completely to him. And so um, that's what I think the reference to hands being lifted up in prayer and in worship is all about. Making sure that things are right and we lift up holy hands and pray. Um, because why would we ask if we don't have things right anyway, right? If we're not lifting up holy hands, if we're just praying and not having things right, then what good are our prayers? Uh, it is the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man that accomplishes much. All right, Annika, I really appreciate your question. Uh, and let's see if we've got anything else that's here. Um, again, if you have questions, you can just write out question and bring them in here. We are looking at them uh, through the lens of scripture. Uh, just an encouragement again to make sure that you read and reread uh, your questions to make sure that they are clear, which you guys are doing a good job of, by the way. So question, response, okay? Um, the, be uh, the beast that arsicist, uh, oh, the beast that arises, arsicist. <laughs> the, the beast that arises out of the bottomless pit in Revelation and makes war with the two witnesses seems like a physical manifestation. Um, uh, yeah, it seems, yeah, it seems like there's some kind of physical manifestation there. I would 100% agree with you. And I, that is on the question that you asked earlier on whether or not in the last days there are angels that manifest themselves uh, in physical ways. Um, and that would be a unique case. I don't know other than that if there are, um, but I would agree with you. I think that's a good, um, I think that's a good observation. All right. Um, yeah, I see some conversations about flat earth there. Um, good, good conversations going on. Um, it'll tell you that people will believe anything, by the way. Um, when you have so many people that will get to the point where they believe that the earth is flat, um, when you can get an airplane up high enough to be able to see the curvature of the earth. Um, so uh, I'm looking for more questions here. Uh, if you guys have questions, then just write question before them. Uh, and um, good to see all you guys. Good to see all the conversations taking place here. Uh, the community uh, together. That's great. Um, Sharon has a question here. Uh, all right. So um, this is for Sharon. She joins us from YouTube. Good to see you. If you guys are on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe, ring the bell. Uh, that helps us to get more, uh, to reach out to more people. We want to reach as many people as we can through social media. It helps us to do that. If you want to help us to do that, then uh, that's a way you can do it. Uh, she says, um, Sharon says, question, was reading in the Bible that King David was older required a young girl to be brought, kept him warm? Why? Um, he did have many wives. Uh, yeah. Why? 
I don't know that there's an answer to it other than this was one of the problems that David had. Remember, God from the beginning wanted there to be one, a man and a woman should leave their father and mother. The two should cleave together and become one flesh. And so there was no reason for this to happen. Um, it just seems to be another abuse when David was old. I'm not saying that he wasn't saved. We're not even told that anything went on. Uh, it just seems like something that was inappropriate. Um, maybe it was, you know, again, a way the doctors were trying to keep him warm by bringing a young girl in that would cuddle up next to him. Um, I don't know that it had to be a young girl. Uh, could not, that it certainly could have been one of his wives. So yeah, I find problems with it as well. Um, remember the Bible paints these guys, warts and all. None of them are perfect. None of us are perfect. None of them are perfect. I think that this is um, always problematic and something that I don't like to read. All right, so I appreciate uh, the question. And um, let me just see here if we've got any more. We're about done. Um, uh, we have a question from Ishmael here. Another drink of coffee here. Uh, question, what is meditating? Well, let me get this back, see if I can unshrink what I just shrunk. Um, what is the meditating on God's word? How do you meditate in your study? Thanks. Um, so, uh, like Psalms 1, right? Blessed is the man who walks out in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of the sinner, nor stands in the way of the scornful, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and the law he meditates day and night. And so, meditation to me is not clearing your mind, uh, although I think that prayer is very powerful to sit before God quietly, and, and, and I think that maybe some of the benefits people find from clearing their mind or sitting quietly or reflecting um, are benefits we can get from prayer because we are doing those things that are necessary for us to do. And maybe they're just grasping part of it. I'm not saying that that's all the benefits in prayer. Obviously, interacting with the loving God, being close to Him is really powerful. Um, but meditating on God's Word uh, is taking a passage and just kind of chewing it up, thinking about it in your mind, just going over it. Um, and I do that a lot. I, um, I'll take passages that I'm um, wondering about and I'll think about them. I put them in the oven, right? The cooker, what I call the cooker in the mind there and let it rotate around. When I can't sleep at night, I will meditate. When I'm worried about passages, I'll try to bring up passages that may be connected to what I'm struggling with and what I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with um, and I'll start to go over it like um, the Lord's Prayer. You know, you can meditate on that. Our Father who art in heaven. We have a Father in heaven. Meditate on the fact that we have a Father. You have a Father in heaven, a dad that cares about you and loves you, um, that is up in heaven. And he's holy. He's pure. Um, his kingdom, we want to live his kingdom come, his will be done. And so we can break it down. And so take passages you memorize. And if you don't have a lot memorized, I would say the memorize passages. It's a really good thing uh, to memorize different passages that are out there. So memorize them so you can mull over them in your mind and you can meditate on them. We're certainly not talking about um, Eastern kind of meditation, but we're talking about biblical meditation, meditating on the things of God and meditating on the things that God has said. And there are tremendous benefits um, that come from that. All right. So um, let's see. Uh, Jerry has a question here. 
Yep, I'm uh, just making a statement that Scott said the same thing I just said. Um, Scott Richards, um, if the first sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. And I think that's true. And if you are going to look for a second sense in, our, or in a passage, make sure it's backed up by other scriptures. And sometimes you do find a dual emphasis in the New Testament. Okay, so I just want to kind of want to reiterate that. So I'm just going to look for one more to bring in here. And this will be the last question that we bring in. Uh, so James, a question here. Uh, we will be back again on Saturday afternoon at three o'clock. Love to have you guys join us again. If you're new here, thank you again for being here. We really appreciate that. Again, help us to reach as many people as we can with these Q and A's and with our other videos by subscribing and ringing the bell. Um, if you're not, okay, I see a lot of questions from you guys who are regulars and I can tell whether or not you're subscribed. And so that's why I've said it a couple of times today. I just want to encourage you to subscribe because it's a way that you help us to reach more people. All right. So James says, question, um, have recently come to understand that speaking in tongues is a gift, but without understanding it becomes simple utterance. Is this true? Now, let me read your question again. Um, I have recently come to understand that speaking in tongues is a gift, but without understanding it becomes simple utterance. Is this true? Um, I don't know if I'm going to answer this question on an, is it true or not response? Um, yes, my spirit, this, I'm going to give you what first Corinthians 14 says, my spirit speaks mysteries to God. And in that I am edified by it. So, so maybe I would say it doesn't become simple utterances. Um, it, I can't, I don't understand it. I don't have interpretation, so I don't know what I'm saying, but I do know that my spirit is magnifying God. And every time we find tongues in the Bible, making a reference to it, that it tells us what's being said. It's always magnifying God, lifting up, up and praising him. It's never a word from God, thus says the Lord. That's prophecy. And so oftentimes in Pentecostal churches that I've been in, charismatic churches I've been involved in, the interpretation will often sometimes be thus saith the Lord instead of a, um, a praise when always in the Bible, it is your spirit speaking mysteries to God. Through, through the tongues, you are praying and asking God. So if you get that gift, Yes, unless you have the gift of, 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 of um, being able to interpret, gift of interpretation, which I don't have, so I don't know how that works, um, then I would say there's no way that you're going to know what's being said at all, unless you're talking in a language that someone can understand. All right, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and sign off now. I appreciate you guys. Um, I love the community that's being built here. Um, and uh, we have a church service tonight. I'd like to invite you to join us online, 6 o'clock, so it's just a couple of hours um, from now. Uh, we are going to be, uh, it's called Faith, A Leap Into the Light. So we're going to be answering the question, what is faith and how should that apply to my life and what does that mean in my life today? So I look forward to seeing you guys who are going to be there tonight. Uh, may you stay close to Jesus, really love him with everything that you've got. Um, walk before him. Uh, the Bible, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Those who generally love him will keep his commandments. Um, walk in purity with Christ, wanting, wanting to give him that righteousness. Find, uh, keep short accounts. If you blow it, ask him to forgive you that you can keep short accounts with him. All right. So God bless you guys. I uh, love you. And we will talk.